And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led, it up a, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man? that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this is becoming a tradition, but I would love for everyone to join us in the last section um, of the song. It has a very simple melody, which I'll teach you really quickly, which I don't usually do, but I think it's intended to be a chorus, so. Lost in the cloud, a voice, have no fear, we draw near, lost in the cloud. A sign, son of man, turn your ear, lost in the cloud. You can join me. A voice, lamb of God, we draw near, lost in the cloud. A sign, son of man, son of God. You got it. When he took the three disciples to the mountainside to pray, his countenance was modified, his clothing was aflame. Two men appeared, Moses and Elijah came, they were at his side. The prophecy, the legislation spoke of whenever he would die. 
Then there came a word of what he should accomplish on the day. Then Peter spoke to make of them a tabernacle place. A cloud appeared, glorious, an accolade. They fell on the ground. A voice arrived, the voice of God, the face of God covered in a cloud. Wet, he said to them, the voice of God, the most beloved Son. Consider what he says to you, consider what's to come. The prophecy was put to death, was put to death, and so was the Son. And keep your word, disguise the vision till the time was come. Lost in the cloud. Lost in the cloud, a voice, have no fear, we draw near. Lost in the cloud. A sign, son of man, turn your ear, lost in the cloud. A voice, lamb of God, we draw near, lost in the cloud. A sign, son of man, son of God, lost in the cloud. A voice, have no fear, we draw near, lost in the cloud. A sign, son of man, turn your ear, lost in the cloud. A voice, lamb of God, we draw near, lost in the cloud. A sign, Son of Man, Son of God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came over from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. As Jonathan th said, it's becoming a bit of a tradition to play that song. It's the, uh, he, he'd like to call it the Greener Family Band, but little do you know, Emily's last name, uh, maiden name is Cool. So it's the Cool Family Band. Sounds much better. Um, uh, but it's, for me, the meaning of, of Transfiguration Sunday and so much is, is caught in this idea, particularly in the Protestant tradition, and is that it's a, it's a 
text that we explain. Moses and Elijah represent the law of the prophets. It's a theopony. Um, it's a vision on high, like Moses' vision in the wilderness. They wait six days. Um, uh, we are commanded to listen to him. Uh, all true, but it often misses sort of the beauty and the revelation, the peeling back of the layers of creation to reveal who Jesus is. And so in my study this week, um, it was funny because, uh, again, as I generally read Protestant scholars on, on the journey towards preaching, um, uh, they, uh, the text that we read with the blind man and the uh, pronouncement of who Jesus is and the following of Jesus, lots of good stuff throughout our whole tradition. But when we get to the transfiguration, it's the same thing every year for me. And in the past, I've tried to preach the transfiguration in a way that tried to illuminate it. And, and there's, a, there's a scholar, Douglas Herring, who, who changed my vision on it when he said that the, to, to truly appreciate the transfiguration, it's perhaps time for us Protestants sometimes to put on Eastern Orthodoxy as a way of visioning it. It's, in the Eastern tradition, it's had a much more prominent place, both in its beauty, but both in its signal, both in what it's meant for us. And I think there's a little bit of, of that Protestant worth that in there and that like, take up your cross, follow me, confess who Jesus is, all this, work harder. Um, beauty will come later. Uh, and yet that, that scene is tied to this other scene in important ways. It's not that Jesus says, take up your cross and die. Walk with your instrument of death along this road and doesn't give them a glimpse into what is awaiting them. Doesn't give them a glimpse into glory and transfiguration, a glimpse into what the resurrected life will look like. Creation renewed. Doesn't bring them into a different spot. So as I've said in the past, I've, I've, I've tried to, to preach that sermon. I, I think last year's was good. Two of them were bad. Um, uh, I tried too hard. Um, you know, it's often when it's like closest to you, it's hardest to explain. Um, but because Mark's gospel, and, and this is the image we've, we've sort of been using, because Mark's gospel is, is put in such a clear way in which there are eight chapters leading up to this, eight chapters following this, this notion of Messiah, uh, which Jesus was proclaimed at in Mark 1.1, appears again in Peter's confession. This notion of, of who is Jesus, what are we seeing? Um, all of this is such pinnacle to, to understanding Mark's gospel. When we do Mark, I, I try to do less of the for lack of a, a better word, mystical explanation, but try to place it in where is the story going? Where are we in this place? And Mark's uh, way of framing both the lead up to this and, and where it goes from here is just um, genius in its telling. And one of the reasons why we, we do one gospel every year from New Year until Easter is because I think that when you understand the shape of it, it becomes more meaningful. And Mark has, more than the others almost, a more distinct shape. It has this question of who is this one. It's ending, the ending we have for it, if, if you've got the Bible we've given away or most translations today, ends with, with the women were afraid and they told no one. Um, it's got this distinct character to how it builds and what it's asking of its readers. Um, uh, who do you say that I am is a question that goes to us as much as it goes to Peter. That this gospel is alive and active in that way. So in this way, 
uh, when we get to Mark, uh, Eileen will end with some thoughts on the transfiguration. But what I try to do is put it in its wholeness. The second way it sort of comes in its wholeness is, is way where we are in liturgical time, the time of sort of practicing the church year, um, this time of, and so you have Advent, this time of expectation. You have this Christmas season, this celebration of the arrival. The time in which we are in the last Sunday of, which is always Transfiguration Sunday, is this time of epiphany, of this revelation of who God is. And so it starts with the epiphany every year of his baptism, and it closes with the epiphany, the revelation every year at the Transfiguration. And then depending on the number of Sundays in between, it's filled with various different texts depending on what gospel you're in, Um, but that's the shape of that. But Wednesday um, is Ash Wednesday, And at that moment, like the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel of Luke even more explicitly, we turn with Jesus and walk towards the cross. Up until this moment, the prediction that Jesus gives his disciples after they confess who he is, there's been no reference to where this is going. There's been hints of opposition, people who are coming to him, but at this moment, Jesus begins to speak to them clearly that the Son of Man must suffer and die. And so we, too, on Ash Wednesday, we hear the truth um, that we will die. Um, uh, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Um, And then in the Sundays after that, we walk forward in the Gospels, looking at um, the ways in which this is leading to Jerusalem. There's a saying about each of the Gospels is that they are long passion narratives with extended introductions that the, the events of, of, of Passion Week are that sort of heightened part of the gospel. It's, it's there that all four gospels get the most similar in what happens. It's there the narrative sort of takes its crux and, and sort of makes the point about the identity of who this one is. And it's in that story that this identity is truly disclosed in its, in its deepest sense. In his earlier parts of his ministry, he travels the countryside, heals. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a great joke that takes boating trips with his friends um, uh, and then acts like he has all the time in the world because, of course, he does, which is a nerdy pastor's joke that Peterson throws in there for us, um, that that's what he does in the first half of the gospel. But in each of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke particularly, that when that confession of faith comes, they set towards Jerusalem that the gospel is turned towards that way. And the section that, that Mark goes into here is made up of the three sort of predictions of the cross for the disciples as they go to Jerusalem. This is the first one. There are two others following this in which he tells them what is going to happen. And so this is the shape of this gospel. It's a, this, this moment makes, I think, a center hinge that sort of d- explains the rest of it. You have this one who is explained as one who will suffer, as one who will die, who is Israel's Messiah in a way that they did not expect him to be the Messiah. Also, if we're honest, not a way we would expect our Messiah to come either, um, to be crucified and die. With this challenge to those who will follow him, as we've, we've sort of alluded to in Mark's gospel, Jesus is one sort of on... Um, Uh, eschatological warfare, this apocalyptic warfare path, but in a different way than you would imagine. He's revealing who the true enemies are, who the true distorters of creation are. You know, for many of the people in this context, they would have said, it's the Romans. Um, It's just 
brought to mind that what have the Romans ever done for us skit. But anyways, um, uh, the Romans are the enemies. Uh, but Jesus reveals that it's the demonic that is the distortion of creation. In the last passage we had at the end of seven, it's the human heart where evil comes out of, he said. That Solzhenitsyn's quotes. It's even ourselves that are divided in that way and who would cut out their own heart. Jesus reveals that the, the instruments of evil aren't as obvious as we think they are. And so he um, forms this group that will follow him. But then as it captures the wholeness of the gospel, it has that vision of that transfiguration, of that beauty. Of There are scholars who... God bless biblical scholars who, who place it as a um, misplaced resurrection scene, um, which is not all that helpful. But, but it is a helpful point in this way, in that it shows that what is, they see there is the resurrected life displayed before them. They see the transformation of creation. And so here, right at the center of Mark's gospel, is, is these two condensed sort of stories that tell us the whole story that show us the whole of what is going to happen. We're going to follow that path to the end in the coming weeks, but that's, that's sort of where we are today. The first question, and I'm going to walk through this as if they're questions, and they're questions for us as they appeared in the text. Some of them as questions and some of them as me trying to make them questions. You can only do so much. Um, uh, the first story that uh, Carla read for us is Jesus asked the blind man, Do you see anything? The placement of this story mirrors with Peter's confession of faith. The blind man is is seen by Jesus, and he places his hands on him. And the blind man in this instance responds, I see people walking around. I see people, they look like trees walking around. Jesus' question for us and for the reader and for the blind man, is this, do you see anything in what is going on so far in this story? What is it you see? When Peter's asked this question of what do they think I am, who do they think I am, he replies with, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah's, and others one of the prophets. This mirrors, too, with the I see trees walking around like people. We have partial sight into that question of who Jesus is. But what happens is, he, he, um, once more Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes, then, Jesus, then his eyes were opened, his sight restored, and he saw everything clearly. That Peter's answer, which is um, brought out to him, of him in, a, in like a good method of a teacher, like, like Jesus um, pulls this answer out of him, is that moment in which we see things clearly. That he is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. But so too for us is that, is that what do we see as we seek to follow Jesus? Because again, he's going to predict his death and his passion. And he is going to ask that those who follow him give up, their, give up themselves. But the next question um, this one also from the text, is, but what about you? Uh, you, he asked, who do you say I am? Now this is, uh, this is uh, Jesus loaded this one up for the preacher, 
who do you say that he is, is the question that often comes out of this. But I think it's not actually a question of the unbeliever at this moment in, in Mark's gospel telling. It's, it's a question of those who have seen this one enacting the kingdom. They've seen God's faithfulness in the world. But the question is, is what does it mean that it is coming through this person? Who do you say that I am as you've seen this? This, uh, this um, the previous answer from the crowds, they replied, and Jesus has this way, um, Mark has this way in, in people uh, and man or human, uh, depending on which translation you're reading, um, uh, singular and plural is always showing up. So if you you trace it in English, you'll see it, the people and then the man, the people and the, the individual. There's this, there's this tension um, that he's always sort of restoring the individual and the people are sort of out there as well. Um, but they have this way of, of uh, who do you say that I am? He, or they replied, ah, who do people say I am? And then he flips it here to who do you say I am? What's interesting in the next part, after he teaches them about the death, is he will call everyone to himself and asks if they'll follow him. We, we often reverse this first and say, the question is, who do you say Jesus is? The first question might be, is, do you want to follow him? And then the second question might be working out who he is. This is Mark's gospel takes place on the way a lot. There's this immediately action thing. It's like it's sorted out before your eyes as you travel along with him. Um, but Peter replies that you are the Messiah, which is this incredibly loaded term at this time and in this context. Incidentally, the region which they're passing through, which um, uh, Caesarea of Philippi, Emily, is that how you said it? We, talk, we joked about this, Caesarea, we joked about this before the sermon. If you say it confidently, nobody questions you, but I always have to go after somebody who said it confidently, so I never get the benefit of saying it. They'll be like, who's right? The pastor is. Um, the, uh, uh, the region that they're passing through is a region of idolatry to other gods and one of the regions that, that, that uh, had high allegiance to Caesar. And so it's a politically loaded place to ask the question of who do you say that I am and then have the answer be the Messiah. It's this anointed one, this long-promised one of Israel whom they're claiming Jesus is. Now that, that's a shocker in itself, and it's almost, um, as I'm reading through Mark's gospel again this time, um, it's almost like the Mark's gospel at times seems to find it more shocking that he, the crucified one, is the Messiah than that he, the crucified one, is the son of God. Uh, we've, we've, we've reversed that a lot, and probably for good reason. Um, it's more shocking that he's the son of God. But, but for the first century imagination that your Messiah, your rescuer, is the one who ends up crucified, that needs more explanation. Um, that needs more thought. Uh, Caesar claimed to be the son of God, but he would have never been crucified. Um, that the Messiah is the one who's going to suffer these things is the real controversy. And we see it here in this next section. Um, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. They must be killed and after three days rise again. This um, next thing is a shock 
to their imagination, and it too should be a shock to our imagination. The rescue that we hope for even today is one that looks more victorious in victory than victorious after defeat. There is victory in the gospel. It's what we see in the transfiguration, that crowning moment of victory. But what precedes that is defeat at the hands of what is the destruction, destroying powers that there are. Now, there are ways in which we, as a 21st century Protestant or Christians of any stripe, people are capable of reading the Old Testament and seeing these seeds that this one might be one who suffers. But if you were living through this time, that would not be the strand of text you pick to follow. And I say that, importantly, that if you were living through this time, that would not be the strand of text you'd pick to follow. You might think, oh, no, I'd get Isaiah right, and the suffering servant from the Psalms, and this, that, together, and put together a picture that says, yeah, we're oppressed, but the guy coming to help us will also die at the hands of the oppressor. It's not the way in which we would do this ourselves either. So Peter speaks up, and, and we often throw Peter under the bus here, and pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. Peter knows that this is not the way it's supposed to go. Peter, like the blind man, saw that Jesus was the Messiah. Like people, like trees walking around like people. But like every other human in the gospel, it will take another touch of Jesus for him to see who Jesus is in this revelation. In Mark's gospel, as we've talked, in the transfiguration, in the baptism, this is my son whom I love. In the transfiguration, this is my son whom I love. At the cross, when darkness has come over the land and Jesus is dead, a Roman centurion, which is shocking as well, confesses truly this man was God's son. Those are the three confessions of Jesus as the Son of God in Mark's gospel. Um, and we, you know, that's part of understanding the shape of the story to draw out its meaning, is that it, the divine can only really express it until he's crucified. And then it comes on human lips in the midst of, of more than sadness. There is no resurrection at that point. The man at the cross sees is what perhaps we can all see in our, our own depravity and choices for evil is the extinguishment of divine light resides with us. Um, it's a hard truth. It's not a fun truth. And, and, uh, but I think it's, it's proper for Christians to begin to be able to see that. That it, as we stand there, and in John's gospel, there's this, you know, the light... Um, uh, the darkness tries to put out the light. Too often we think that we are the ones who have worked all this out perfectly, but it's, it's for us to receive that revelation by standing in that spot as well. Both the spot of, of the transfiguration as well as the spot of the crucifixion, of having both those mark us in this way. And interesting, this story moves from blindness to blinding light, if you look at the way in which the transfiguration from the blindness of the man 
at Bethsaida to the, to the blinding light of the transfiguration as well. The next uh, question is, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and, who said, and, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus here calls the disciples out into, um, not just the disciples, but the crowds, into this place of, of sort of um, teaching. Now, now there's a way, uh, th- has anybody seen the movie Gladiator, which I'm now realizing is a dumb question? Um, uh, uh, it's, uh, what's Maximus' speeches at the battle? What you do in this lifetime echoes in eternity. Um, great speech. Probably not that Christian, but nonetheless memorable. Um, what Jesus is doing here is calling, and this is the pattern it seems to be following in, in this context, for him to call people to him and tell them about the battle in which they are going to go into. Uh, for lack of a better term, this one sounds so s- sad to me because it's such a weak comparison. It's like a halftime speech, which is like, now nah, I just want to like crawl in a hole for even comparing it to that. Um, but it's, it's that point of, although the halftime speech in any given Sunday is one of the best movie speeches of all time. So that one I'm sure you haven't seen. Watch it on YouTube. The movie's not that great. But anyways, um, uh, things go dark real fast. Um, uh, that Jesus calls them to themselves in this way of setting them up for what they are going to enter into. That if you want to follow this general if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be a student of this one, if you want to follow this one, you must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He goes on to say, for everyone to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and my gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus asks this question of, of this, this contrast with life here. You want to have eschatological life. You want to have end-time life. You want to live into that forever kind of life, which means you have a different relationship to the life you have in the present. That future life that we're invited into is greater than the life that, that we see and we are bound by. And this death to self thing, um, I worry sometimes it becomes too easy to be like, oh, people who are consumeristic, they need to die to, to self, which is, of course, true, but also um, misses the point. And there are all sorts of ways in which we control and refuse to die to ourselves in the modern world. There's um, a notion in which we can take on victimhood to gain power and a refusal to die towards ourself. There's a way in which we can take on... Um, uh, roles in society and functions in a way that props up the self that rather than enables us to die to ourself. Part of it is, is everything for us certainly today seems like a power game. And Christ is offering us a way out of that. There's, um, there's two quotes I want to share about this one. Like I said, Protestants, we often do better on this one, and then we'll get to the transfiguration quickly. This one is from Stanley Harwas. Now, this is, you should know, is what I think of pastoral care. Um, this was an interview that he did with Will Wilmon before, the, or during the pandemic, I guess, near the, one of the ends of the pandemic. <laughs> it was not uh, the end as we know, but 
so if you're new, this is, this is my vision for pastoral care. For the grace of God we go. Both as an, an academic discipline and as a practice, pastoral care has become obsessed with the personal wounds of people in advanced industrial societies who have discovered that their lives lack meaning. What did you expect, I want to ask these people? Quit taking yourselves so seriously. Enjoy having your narcissism defeated by being drawn into the church's eschatological mission to witness to the Christ, cross, and resurrection. That's care worthy of the name Christian. We, if you're, if you're confused, we are the people who find that our lives lack meaning. And this call that Jesus has in this moment is that what did you expect? Take up your cross and follow me. Die as the entry into life. Bonhoeffer's phrase here is that when Christ bids a man, a human, a person, he bids him to come and die. Um, that Christ is, is calling us into that place. And so we have to learn to quit taking ourselves so seriously. Narcissism might be a different epidemic of our age, but we can enjoy having it defeated by being drawn into something that is bigger than ourselves. The life eternal, the life beyond the second uh, quote comes from G.K. Chesterton, which, I, as we looked at that as sort of a battle speech, there's this call to courage, I think, that is in this. It's a call to courage in the world. One of the phrases I often use around Easter, I believe it comes from Rob Bell, though, it's a question about those people we see who are fierce with reality. Ever since I heard that phrase, I've longed to try and be one who is fierce with reality, who struggles with it in different ways. Chesterton captures this in a different way. Take the curse of quality, of, of courage. No quality has ever so much addled the brains and tangled the definitions of merely rational sages. Courage is almost a contradiction in term. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. A strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. It's not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed in an alpine guide or a drill book. The paradox is the whole principle of courage, even on quite earthly or brutal courage. A man cut off uh, by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he would be a coward and he will not escape. He must not merely await death, for then he will be a suicide and he will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. Must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must deserve, desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. No philosopher I fancy has ever expressed the romantic riddle with adequate lucidity, and I certainly have not done so, but Christianity has done more. It has marked the limits of it in the awful graves of the suicide and the hero, showing the distance between him who dies for the sake of living and him who dies for the sake of dying. Uh, this is this call 
in which Christ calls us to encourage into the world, to see it in a different way. Jesus then tells them truly. Um, so the, the question, the last question was, um, uh, what do you see? Um, who is Jesus? Who do you say I am? What kind of Messiah will this be? That is, the Son of Man must suffer. What kind of followers will this Messiah have? And then what does the fullness, the victory of this one look like? Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come in power. Long baffled readers of the Gospels because uh, it's been 2,000 years. Um, Mark has the transfiguration immediately following this, which can suggest that that is the, the time in which they see six days later, um, and six days later, this is an allusion to Moses and that he fasts six days before he goes up on the mountain. Six days later, um, they will see the kingdom and its power. And then in Mark's gospel, too, there's, there's the way we talked about the kingdom is it is in the person of Christ. It is in his activities in the world. And it is in the church and the community of disciples that witnesses to it. It's kind of present already. He said it was at hand at the opening of the gospel, his earliest message. Um, uh, and then later in the gospel, he'll say that, that neither the Son of Man knows the time, which makes it maybe more clear that this means the transfiguration, because even Jesus doesn't know the time. I have this phrase I, I use, it's dangerous to one-up Jesus. There's two instances of it here. Uh, one-up, do people know that phrase, like, to try to do better than Jesus? The first is that I'll make it through Christianity and following Jesus without suffering, which, like, take up your cross and follow me, you're kind of, you're kind of not going to do that one. The second is those who say, I know the time and the place of when the second coming will happen. Uh, another dangerous way to one-up Jesus, because even he says he doesn't know the time or the place. Uh, uh, not a wise way to live. But anyways, this brings us to the reason for today, this transfiguration truth, this capturing and beauty, this way in which these disciples, they go up on a mountain and they're caught up in a vision that's beyond them that points to this resurrection life and this resurrection truth. That this way of, of learning about who Jesus is, about the cost that he will pay, about the way he invites us into following him in that path. And, and in that way, we, we know he doesn't abandon us because it's the path he walked as well. The, the cry of dereliction in Mark's gospel, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is, um, is one that we know that he said, even as we feel that way. And so this vision is one in which is meant to, um, uh, Leo the Great said it, removes the offense of the cross, which I think is a little bit too optimistic. But, but it's one in which it, it, it is meant to be this beauty in which we know where we are going. And it's interesting in the way in which it mirrors the, the crucifixion. There are, there are Moses and Elijah with him here. Um, there are two criminals with him at the, the crucifixion. There is uh, supernatural darkness in Mark's gospel at the crucifixion. There is unsurpassable light in the transfiguration. There is um, uh, the confession of who he is after he dies in death. There is the confession from God that this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And this is this um, way in which... Uh, the crucifixion and the transfiguration perhaps are overlaid on each other and that if you peel back the layers of creation and look deeper at the cross, perhaps it's what you see there is the transfiguration as well. 
that the place where light resides the lightest is sometimes the place where we see the darkest. But to go into that, to look at the cross, might also be the place at which we see that the light beginning to dawn and what Christ has done. I'll close in this quote from uh, David Bentley Hart. Um, He's writing about an Eastern Orthodox icon of the Transfiguration. In the icon, this is on the back of the bulletin, I believe. In the icon of Christ's transfiguration upon Mount Tabor, the entire logic of Christian theology, devotion, worship, mysticism is uniquely concentrated. As an object of contemplation, the transfiguration image compromises within itself the whole story of creation, incarnation, and salvation in a particular way with a fixed harmony of elements with a singular intensity. It allows us in one fixed instant of visionary clarity to see and to reflect upon the entire mystery of the God-man and of his divinization of our humanity in him. The icon also offers a glimpse of the eschatological horizon of salvation for the same light that the three disciples were permitted to see break forth from the body of Christ will in the fullness of time enter into and transform all of creation with that the glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began, began, and the whole of creation awaits with groans of longing and travail. This image, this final image, then to us an image favored by a host of orthodox spiritual writers. The entire universe will be seen, will be like the burning bush seen by Moses, radiant with the fire of God's holiness, but not consumed. And the Christian who prayerfully turns his gaze to the transfiguration and holds it there should see himself taken up into the incarnate God and refashioned after the ancient beauty of the divine image. Every Sunday, every year, Transfiguration Sunday, is this invitation for us to see that as we are called into the cross, the way of the cross, to pick up our cross, to carry our instrument of death and die to self, to have courage in this world in a way that seems impossible. We're provided this image of beauty, of what God has transfixed in Christ, to know that this is not the end, but a resurrection and renewed creation is what awaits us. Let us pray. God, you have called us to be your people. To be a people whose sight is being restored. That we can see and answer who that you are. To name you as our Messiah. We too, like Peter and the early disciples, are confounded by this truth. We also might want to take you aside and rebuke you. But you, God, show us that there are concerns beyond our human concerns. And so you call us into courage, into the way of the cross, into the way of losing our life so that we might save it. May we be your people in that way. And may our renewal not come from trying harder or trusting in ourselves or making more of who we are, of gripping harder with our hands. But may our renewal come in the image of you, 
and clothes dabbling with white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. As the one who renews us in the way of life. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.